0: Let us pray again. Father, I ask for Your grace this morning. The grace of a teacher. The grace of hearers. So that the meaning in Your precious book, the Bible, may become clear and life-changing and that confusion would flee, and that a heart for you would deepen in your Son, Jesus. I pray. Amen. The last few weeks, as we have entered the Abrahamic covenant, we saw that this mind-boggling thing, Genesis 156 Abraham came to faith, when God encountered him at the beginning. And it says, Abraham's faith was reckoned righteousness. That God imputed, put to a sinner's account, perfection, though he was a sinner. Through faith. Last week then, because Abraham is put up as the model of Christian's faith, we asked the question, what is The core, the essence of that faith. And we saw that it is not at its core what you do. It is at its core what you feel, what you desire. That was last week. But we saw at the end of last week's sermon, the text is clear. That that desire, that essence of faith, obeys. Even if God says, kill your son, your only son. Son. And so this morning, the question is how does last week's sermon, the essence, that internal thing, we can't see it with our eyes, that happens, that is the production factory for obedience to God in His commands. How do those two come together? The way I want to go about that this morning is by dealing with two passages of Scripture in the New Testament. One from Paul, and one from the Apostle James, Jesus' brother. Because on the surface, there is an apparent contradiction. And by dealing with it, I hope that we will see true saving faith is a faith that will persevere throughout life with evidence of the faith by its obedience. First, I read from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Implied you can't. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, Christian? You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through chapter 4, verse 5, says... Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. Of the Gentiles also, because God is one and He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as grace or as a gift, but as what his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There it is. There is a blaring, apparent contradiction. James says in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, here at Abundant Grace, we have a statement of faith. And it's one of the core things that I think calls a person an evangelical. And that is our doctrine of the Bible. And our statement of faith goes this way. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God equally in all parts and without error in its original manuscript, absolutely infallible and our source of supreme revelation from God, superior to conscience and reason, though not contrary to reason, and it is therefore our infallible rule of faith and practice. End quote. And both Paul and James are in this book. And they are both coherent. They intend to say something, and with a good, strong, active reading, you can get at that meaning. And this book, all 66 books, do not contradict each other. Jesus said, I'm calling my apostles and I will teach you all things so that you will teach the church. I will send the Spirit so that you instruct the church. And we have that instruction. Having said that, that does not mean we do not run across problems that take work when we read the Holy Scripture." What is he saying here or there? And those of us who run across these problems are finite, sinful, culturally biased, and throw in all kinds of other stuff that may get in the way of how we come to conclusions about what the text of Scripture is saying. And you put that together with this one reality. Language itself. Whether it's Hebrew, English, Greek, Spanish, all human languages by their definition are prone to ambiguity. What do I mean? Okay, just take English here. I'd say to you, what does the word fox mean? You're going to say, well, I'm not sure how you mean it. I know it could have different meanings. Here's the thing with language. In, in, In every language. You can have one word have two or three or five totally different meanings by that one word. Or you can have various words mean the same thing. So, does fox mean that little furry animal? Or does it mean a pretty woman? If I say to you, rock, what does it mean? Well, if a woman just got engaged, it might mean that thing on her finger, a specific type of stone. Or if you're hiking and you are do what I did when I was a kid and still do what I'm hiking, grab sticks and throw up stones, any kind of stones. They're called rocks and hit them. Or it could be a type of music. They have nothing in common in their meaning. And you don't know what the person means except by context. It can even be a verbiage form, something you do in a chair. When you come to the New Testament, which is written in Greek, we have this Greek word, zealos. And in the New Testament, it has at least two very utterly different meanings. It could mean jealousy in a bad sense. Or it could mean zeal for God. I mean, zeal in a good sense. So if someone comes to you, or I say to you as a pastor, let us this week fight to get rid of all zelos in our life, you should not say, yes, amen. You should say, wait a minute. I don't know if I agree with you yet or disagree with you. Define for me what you mean by zelos. Do you mean this sinful jealousy or do you mean this righteous zeal for God? That is the problem with all language. Whether it's me preaching to you now, you reading your Bible or a book, or you having a conversation with each other after church today. There are times where even orally you must say, I don't. Please, let me ask you a question. What did you mean when you used this? It wasn't because you didn't understand the basic language of English. It was because you weren't sure how the author of those oral words, your friend, was using those words. So if we had an English person here and said, Hey, let's go play football after church. And you say, I don't want to play football. Let's go play soccer. And you argue about that for the next five hours would be useless because what he means by football is exactly what we in America mean by soccer. And so, you can have the same words have various different meanings and you can have very different words have the same meaning. Because of that, what I was teaching in the Bible college when I would teach Bible courses work through book of the Bible, one of the Assignments I gave throughout the quarter was always a number of chapters. I think there's 11 chapters in this book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. Basic, how do you deal with terms? Here's a key. I will quote for about 30 seconds from Adler. He says, A term is not a word. Now let me pause for a moment. This is where we're going to go why I'm laying a foundation. When James uses a term justified by works, it's a term. Paul uses a term justified by faith. We've got to think hard about what the author or authors are doing. A term is not a word, at least not just a word without any further qualifications. If a term and a word were exactly the same, You would only have to find the important words in a book, or the book of James, or Romans. You would only have to find the important words in a book in order to come to terms with it. But a word can have many meanings, especially an important word. If the author uses a word in one meaning, this means while you're reading your Bible, and it means while you're having a conversation today after church. If an author uses a word in one meaning and you, the reader, read it or the hearer hear it in another, words have passed between you, but those two people have not come to terms. Where there is unresolved ambiguity in communication, there is no communication. Or at best, communication must be incomplete. For the communication to be successfully completed, therefore, it is necessary for the two parties to use the same words with the same meanings, in short, to come to terms. Okay. Yes, reading any book that's worth reading, even having a conversation... With your spouse, or your friend, or a boss, or a co-worker. Oh, how much ambiguity and confusion happens in the office. It takes work to, to think, to hear, to question what another means by what they're saying so we can come to terms and be on the same page. And so I say all that to lay the foundation and groundwork of dealing with Paul and with James. A couple weeks ago, in the Abrahamic narrative, I took us to Romans chapter 4 and to see how Paul interprets the narrative with Abraham. And he was clear. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul said, For we hold that one is justified, that means forgiven of their sin, acquitted, not guilty, and imputed positive perfection or righteousness to them. Paul says that happens by faith apart from works of the law. In chapter 4, verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but trusts, this word for faith, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is teaching very clearly that God's verdict of, to us sinners, in reality, his verdict of not guilty. And my son's perfect life put to your legal account before me. Happens by and only through the means of faith. Alone. With nothing else added. Then we come to James. And James says in chapter 2 verse 21 Was not Abraham our father justified same word by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar. And in verse 24, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we go, wow! James not only says that a person's justified by works. But he goes on to be clear and deny that a person is justified by faith alone. At least on the surface, that's what it clearly says. At least the words he is using seem to be saying something that is in direct contradiction to what Paul is saying. So, what's going on? Here's the big question. In James, when he's writing his epistle, is his, and this is always key, it's key in your marriages, it's key in friendships, and it's key when you're reading a dead person, is that person's intention, their purpose in the words they're using, to say such and such, Is James's purpose in what he's writing in order to refute the Apostle Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone? Is that what he is doing? If he is, then there is a blatant contradiction in Holy Scripture that will not, cannot stand with any rational being. Or the other question is this is James's purpose to refute a distortion that was going on within the early church concerning Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone in other words is it core James what he's saying it is compatible with Paul but what he is doing is being is bringing a corrective that is needed because of the inferences or conclusions that people were drawing from Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone, which are unwarranted. Now, you know where I stand. I think Paul, or James, I'm sorry, was clearly bringing a corrective, not challenging the doctrine of what Paul meant when he said justification by faith alone, but challenging what many other Christians were inferring from that. And he's bringing a corrective to it. I'm going to go to Paul first. What do I mean? Not just We can go through church history and see the abuse of Paul's language constantly throughout church history. It's here today where people think, I'm a Christian because I said a prayer, I'm in the faith, period, and how I live has absolutely nothing to do with getting to heaven. It's all over the place. Well, in Paul's very lifetime, he was very conscious and aware that people were taking the gospel he got directly from Jesus and abusing it. They were drawing inferences that are not logical and do not have to follow and were blatantly wrong. Like, look, Paul teaches that God takes disgusting, ungodly sinners and... Justifies them. He acquits them of all their sin and puts them as if they're perfectly righteous before Him in Christ. And, he's, and, and Paul teaches, God does it that way in order that His God's grace would be magnified. Oh, okay, great. Then Paul, let us just go on and sin all the more so that God's grace would be magnified all the more. This is why Paul says in Romans 3.8, listen clearly, Here he says, quote, And why not go on and do evil, that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And then he says, Their condemnation is just. All over the place, for people who could not stand Paul in his teaching or are accusing, you see the doctrine of grace? Through faith alone? What that means is Paul says, you can profess Christ and be a Christian and have nothing change your life. Not only that, go on and sin all you want. That's what Paul's teaching or other people who are taking it to heart and say, no, I, want, I, I don't want to slander, but I like Paul and this is what it means, which is probably going on a lot with the people James is writing to. See, Paul taught, here's a quote from Paul, Romans 5.20, very clearly. Now, the law came in, why, Paul says, in order to increase sins, to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace, abounded all the more. That is Paul. And he means what that sounded like. And so, what were some people in the first century doing? (laughs) I know. What do we say to that then? Let us just continue in sin, therefore, so that grace may abound. Paul knows they're saying this. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, quote, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As these people are saying. And of course his answer is no. And then he argues for it. But that's what they were saying. Now, again before we go to James, Paul is not going to let go of the core of the gospel. Justification. By faith alone. And throughout his epistles, 13 epistles in the New Testament, but through most of those epistles, Paul is constantly making it clear that the faith, which is the means of justification, is a faith that gives evidences of works of love. To the point where if it doesn't, it's not faith. I just want to go to one of his epistles To show this, Galatians. Galatians is that other great epistle where he's dealing with the core of the gospel and he's arguing for justification. That is, ultimately, salvation. How? By faith alone. But 1st chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 13. Now listen to Paul. He says, For you were called, Christian, you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, sinful desires, but through love, serve one another. Now that verse, because of everything that he said before, essentially Paul is saying, "Christian, we have this wonderful freedom from the burden of commands that would come to us and say, do me in order that you would be saved from your sin. As a means of justification, you're doing the law. Justification says, no way. It's not by what you do. It is by faith alone. Now, here's the question, though. Paul does say, here it is, here's a command, but through love, there's a command, through love, serve one another. Here's the question. Is Paul's idea, understanding of Christianity, that, okay, freedom through justification by faith alone, Christ's righteousness is our righteousness, we don't have any of our own, freedom And now, with go ahead and serve one another through love, he stacks on top of that something else that the Christian is to live by. In other words, is Paul saying, you started the Christian life by coming to faith. That thing that we talked about last week, that desire sprung up into you in response to the proclamation of the Gospel. And now, great start! But you're not dead yet. You might have three more years or forty-eight more years to live. So therefore, now what you do, you move away from faith, you or you add something to faith called works, obedience, loving other people. Add to that and put those together. Is he saying you had a good start, you started by faith. Now add, here's a key word, add to your faith something else called works listen if right now it's construed that way in your head listen to how Paul feels and thinks about that way of construing the Christian life Galatians chapter 3 verses 2 to 3 let me ask you only this Galatians did you receive the spirit by the works of of the law, or by the hearing with faith? Obvious, the answer is, a response of the heart of faith. And I'm in Christ, I'm saved. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit called producing faith in you, having begun by faith, By the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected or sanctified by the flesh works of the law? He's saying, don't do it. So Paul's answer is that the way a person begins, birthed into the Christian life, begins the Christian life through faith. I hear it, the truth, I see it, what great promises, I believe them, is the same dynamic that they are to walk day by day in the Christian life. And saying that, one of the most crucial verses, I think, in the Bible, and clearly in Paul, to get at that, to show that's what Paul means, and to show that ultimately what Paul and James will be saying are not in contradiction, is Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul says, quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But, implied, what counts with God for everything is faith. Working. True love. See, when Paul dealt with the abuse of his doctrine of justification by faith alone, he said it's not added works like circumcision that will count with God. Then what then, Paul? It's right there. The thing that Counts with God, for everything is think grammatically faith not plus something but faith then he defines the faith he's modifying faith what kind of, working through love I mean, literally, I mean it's pretty clear that we want to do it but literally it's faith and there's a Participle, which is in the middle voice, didn't help most of you, but basically means faith working itself out in loving other people. That's what it means. Not faith plus love. It is the kind of love that is the evidence and the outflow of faith. The only thing between you and God. That matters. What counts, Paul? Faith. What kind of faith, Paul? Faith which works itself out in loving other people. Or you can say it this way. Faith, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and body. What kind of faith? The kind that works itself out, which is the second commandment, in love your neighbor as you love yourself. He does not say faith plus works of love. It's faith. And it's faith alone. But it's, when we say faith, Paul says, we mean this. The kind that is alive and overflows in works of love. For the Apostle Paul, I think, here I am, what am I, 45 years old. This is... I would, if Paul were sitting here, which would make me very nervous, but I'm saying, Am I understanding you right, Paul? I think he, this is how he would say it. When he talks about justification by faith alone, he means there is a miracle, there is something that, that happens. Whether a kid was in church all other life, but then one day they don't even know when it happened, but it happens, or some of us who were converted as adults, it happened somewhere in that period. Something happened called faith came alive. In First Corinthians, Paul says, no one's going to believe the gospel, but to those who are called to them, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Faith came alive as we saw last week. In other words, this internal thing, desire. And at that moment where... I I know it's true, and I like that it's true. (laughs) That's when you were justified. That's what Paul said. That's when God put you in Christ, and your sins were wiped out, past, present, future, forever, and Christ, His own perfect human life was put to your account, justified by faith alone, before you had time to do. Anything. Now that faith is so powerful, so I think you're going to say that now is your life, that next week or the next month or the next year, and imperfectly, but what will happen is that there will be fruit of love, obedience to God, His commands. It'll be there, and all that fruit, all those works, are showing that what you say you believe is genuine real saving faith okay i think here's my transition i think that is what the apostle james is trying to get across james is saying He's talking about a perpetual type of lifestyle. That a loveless faith is not true, genuine faith. He's saying that anybody who comes and proclaims, I'm a a faith, I'm a Christian, we walk in faith, and that's by grace alone, through faith alone, therefore it does not matter whether there is any type of tangible change in my actions, in my loving others, in response to God's commands. James is saying they are dead wrong. Paul would agree. So let's turn now to the book of James and see this. Now, as we come to James, this is where we need to watch out for words in turn. We need to say, even though on, even though on the surface, the words seem to contradict. The question is: does James's meaning? of his terms, contradict what Paul means. In James, what's his purpose? I think as we look at the text, he is concerned with counterfeit faith. He's concerned with a religion, a faith, oh yeah, I believe, that does not justify It doesn't save a person. Look at verse 14, James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? His answer is no. That's his concern. Can that faith save him? His point is this so-called faith is not saving, justifying faith because it doesn't have works. Now, what kind of works is James talking about? The exact same kind of works that the Apostle Paul is talking about. You can see it there in verses 15 and 16. Here's his example. If a brother or a sister professing christian is excuse, oh excuse me if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that see james's concern is with what is genuine saving faith and what's not and the difference is, genuine, saving faith has an outflow, a fruit, called works of love. And it is the counterfeit faith that he's dealing with. That he, he actually got, he has three terms for it in his text here in chapter 2. First, in verse 17, he calls this kind of belief or faith, quote, so also faith by itself, without those works, if it has no works, is dead. He calls it a dead faith. He says it's evidence that there's nothing, like we talked about last week, dynamically alive in the desire factory towards God and His promises and His commands. Then, there is demon faith. Verse 19. You believe That God is one, there's only one God, not three or ten or like the Romans or like the Greek God. You believe there's only one God, you're a monotheist, you're orthodox, good. But even demons believe that. And they shudder because they're not saved. He's saying there is a type of faith that is an affirming of right doctrine. You believe Christ died for the sins of the world and He's the only Savior and God raised Him from the dead, you do well. Demons believe that also. And shudder. See, demons are orthodox. They know more than we extremely frail, finite, stupid human beings. They know the truth. They're orthodox on the intellectual level only. They believe. They know it's true. But it doesn't save them. And then in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from any works, is useless? It's fruitless. It's useless. It won't save you. He calls it these three Things, Faith, this kind of counterfeit faith, faith is dead. It's merely only on the intellectual level, and it is useless. And the Apostle Paul would say a hearty, in my opinion, amen to that. So now, it's at this point where Paul and James both do what? They go to the book of Genesis, to the Abrahamic narrative. And they use the Abrahamic story to make their cases for justification by faith alone, apart from works, and for justification by works, and not by faith alone. They use the Abrahamic story. Let me refresh you with a story. I wish I had a whiteboard. So just picture it from left to right. Genesis 12, starting with verse 1, God encounters Abraham, and he says, leave your people and go to a country, I'm calling you. Okay? Ten years later, after he's done that, ten years later, we come to Genesis 15, 6. And he says, you see the stars of the heaven? So shall your descendants be. And it says, Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Another 25, 26 years after that, we come to Genesis 22. He's an old man. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him. Okay, here's a question as you think about that. The only place in Genesis where you get the actual wording, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, is Genesis 15, 6. Ten years after God gave him a command and promise in Genesis 12. Here's the question. When Abraham obeyed in Genesis 12, was he not justified then you got to understand this about bible doctrine justification happens only once and if it actually happens it happens once and for all time period you don't continue to get justified was abraham justified back at 121 well, the Hebrew writer in the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit says, by faith, Abraham obeyed and left Ur of the Chaldees and went. That's how the New Testament says it. And if that's faith, and it's the faith that's our model in Hebrews 11, isn't it saving faith? Isn't it the faith that justifies? I think so. Now, we get the, we get the phrase in Genesis 15:6 ten years later. I don't think the text is saying that at that point is when Abraham got justified because that's when he came to faith. It's just saying, you see how he believed God here? And thus it's imputed to him as righteousness. Now, why do I say that? Because if we, now we jump 25 years in the future to Genesis 22, and God says, Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your only son. That James, or Paul, would have no problem saying do you see how he obeyed and thus Abraham was justified it's just the evidence because the Bible does not merely see faith did you say the right words did you say a prayer at one particular time that got you in it's not how the Bible looks at faith at all it sees genuine saving faith as the product of a work of God called new birth. And when that happens, that faith, at the very initial moment of it, justifies a person. But that faith, from God's perspective, sees all the subsequent acts, perseverance of faith to the end. It's assumed in the first Act of Faith I'm, I hope now. let me just go to, back to James and see how James uses the narrative. First, he, he takes two accounts. He uses the Genesis 15:6 account and the Genesis 22. He goes to Genesis 15:6 and he quotes it after God says, "I'm going to give you many children." Seems impossible. I God say I'll do it. Abraham believed God, and so you look at James chapter two verse twenty three. He says, "And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God." And that's exactly the same text that the apostle. Paul uses in chapter 4 of Romans, verses 2-3, to For if Abraham, he says, quote, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? It says, And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul says, Faith, not works, was reckoned righteousness. Now, then James notices in the Genesis account, 25 years after that, in Genesis 22, that God put Abraham to the test. That's what the text says. 22.1 He tested Abraham by commanding him to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Question. And this is what James is thinking about. What's the test? What is God testing? Answer. Abraham's faith. What's God looking for? Put it this way. You can't see electricity. Electricians and others of us have little doohickeys with little metal things and you want to know if electricity is still flowing through the wire. You can't see it. And you don't want to feel it. So you get testers and you put them up there and see if the little light goes on. I'm looking for the light to tell me that the, yes, the electricity is flowing through here. God's testing something in the heart of Abraham. So, in a sense, you can't see. Is it in there? What's the test? He's looking for a light bulb called obedience. Will he do this? But not not attitude. It's not going to create the faith. It's going to evidence whether the faith is there. Whether it's a faith that's not a dead faith or a mere intellectual faith or a useless faith. So, the issue with James when he says, do you see that we are justified by works? You see, Abraham's obedience, his issue is the works. The response, whether initially or way down the road, are giving the evidence of faith. They're not creating the faith any more than a little light bulb is creating the electricity. They're giving evidence of the faith. Is Abraham's faith, James is saying, genuine, real, saving faith, or is it dead, demon-like, and useless faith? And so that's why James says in verses 21 and 22, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. When James says, do you see Abraham was justified by works, he has a purpose and a meaning in mind that is different than Paul's approach and purpose and meaning when Paul denies that a person is justified by works. James is answering the question, does the ongoing and ultimately that day of judgment final Imputation of righteousness to Abraham ultimately depend on works as a necessary evidence of true living faith. James answers Yes. And Paul agrees. Galatians five six. The only thing that matters is faith. Which works itself out in obedience, loving others. If you ask James and Paul, how does an ungodly, darkened soul of a person get right with God and receive something outside of himself, it's not his own, perfect righteousness put to his account as a gift, a free grace gift? How does that happen? James and Paul answer the same way. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed, came to faith in God. And thus it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But if you ask them, does justification as an ongoing and final right standing with God, depend on the works of love, Paul's going to say, no. If you mean, this is where Adler's coming in, no it doesn't. If you mean by works, obedience to commands from God, that are done in order to deserve, to work for them, to deserve God's justification or forgiveness of sins and righteousness? And the answer is no. That's why Paul says in Romans 4.45, that's his context when he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who works, acquits the guilty, justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And to that question, James, does justification as an ongoing and final right standing with God depend on works? He's going to answer, yes! Uh, if you mean by works of love, the Fruit and the evidence that the faith you claim to be justified is a genuine faith. And Paul's going to say, oh, I agree with James, seeing that James has defined his terms that way. Well, then I agree. And James is going say, oh yeah, when Paul said no to that question, I agree with Paul, depending on the way he defined the question. Defined. His terms. When Paul renounces justification by works, he is coming against the idea that there is any kind of work, anything you do, baptism, feeding the poor, anything you do that comes alongside of faith and is the means or the reason that God put you in Christ and justified you. That's what he is coming against. He is saying, and he's saying because he's right, got it straight from Jesus, that only faith. That initial moment of, boom, let's put the big bang. We talk, we, scientifically, evidently there was a big bang at one point. And it was going at the speed of light ever since. But at that very initial, big bang of your faith at that moment. Paul's saying, it's by faith. And it's by faith alone. And you don't ever get any more justified. It is utterly a free gift. And you recognize you had nothing to do with it but believe. And so, for Paul, at that initial moment of being justified, anything you do, I'm going to say it clearly, even works of faith are not the ground of your justification. Now, when James affirms justification by works, he means that they are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian to confirm and to prove the reality of the faith that does justify. For Paul, justification by works, which he rejects, means gaining right standing by doing something or anything. For James, justification by works which he accepts means the evidence that the faith that justifies, which was itself alone, is real, genuine faith. The great preacher in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in commenting on James chapter 2, said it this way, We believe that men are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. They are saved by faith without works, but not by a faith which is without works. And so when Paul teaches in Romans, chapter 4, verse 5, that we're justified by faith alone. He means the only thing that unites any sinful person to Christ is a heart of dependence. That's called faith. That's it. Not even the things that that dependence will produce unites you. You got united before that was able to happen. When James says in chapter 2, verse 24, we are not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith which does unite you to Christ is a type of faith that does not remain alone. So Paul's position and James's position are not in contradiction. Faith alone they are teaching unites a person, a sinner, to Christ and to to be clothed with His righteousness. And the faith that unites the person to Christ is a faith that does not remain alone. It cannot. It has or bears the fruits of love. If it doesn't, over time, consistently, No fruit. It's not saving, justifying faith. The faith that saves is what unites a person to Christ. But that faith is a miracle of God. It is not a one-time thing if it's real. It is by its nature a disposition of the heart that has been forever changed and will Thus persevere ups and downs even in this life. So as that faith in the heart of a person goes throughout the rest of this life, it will, sometimes more than others, and sometimes almost like a desert, but it will bear evidences. And how it chooses and acts and repents and loves that point to the reality of genuine saving faith. The faith by which a believer is brought into Christ and the Christian life starts is the same. Faith by which we are to move and act and live day by day. And so as we start to open up our hearts and sing, let's come to the table of the Lord, holding these, because we'll pray over the bread and the wine, the juice together, but come in faith, trusting the promise, Then, I'm not going to drink this with you again, said Jesus, until that day. And this faith means we have fled to Him. And there is a day in the future, at the second coming, where we will sup with Him.